Chapter 8 The Heirs of God For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Romans 8, 14-17 This passage of Scripture is one that ought to cause us to examine our hearts. It summons us to consider the sincere question, Am I an heir of God? Am I an heir of glory? I'm not speaking of any earthly inheritance. I'm not writing of matters which only concern the rich, the great, and the noble. I'm not asking whether you are an heir to money or lands. I only want you to consider seriously whether you are an heir of God and an heir of glory. The inheritance I speak of is the only inheritance really worth having. All others are unsatisfying and disappointing. They bring with them many cares. They cannot cure an aching heart. They cannot lighten a heavy conscience. They cannot keep away family troubles. They cannot prevent sicknesses, bereavements, separations, and deaths. But there is no disappointment among the heirs of glory. The inheritance I speak of is the only inheritance which can be kept forever. All others must be left in the hour of death if they have not been taken away before. The owners of millions of pounds or millions of dollars can carry nothing with them beyond the grave. But it's not so with the heirs of glory. Their inheritance is eternal. The inheritance I speak of is the only inheritance which is within everybody's reach. Most will never obtain riches and greatness, though they labor hard for them all their lives. But glory, honor, and eternal life are offered to every person freely, to every person who is willing to accept them on God's terms. Whosoever will may be an heir of glory. If you wish to have a portion of this inheritance, you must be a member of the one family on earth to which it belongs, and that is the family of all true Christians. You must become one of God's children on earth if you desire to have glory in heaven. If you are not one already, I write to persuade you to become a child of God today. If presently you have only a vague hope and nothing more, I write to persuade you to make sure that you are. Only true Christians are the children of God. Only the children of God are heirs of glory. Give me your attention as I try to explain these things to you and show you the lessons which the verses of our text contain. 1. What is the relationship of all true Christians to God? 2. What are the special evidences of this relationship? And 3. What are the special privileges of this relationship? First, let me show you that the relationship of all true Christians to God is that of sons. They are God's sons. I know no higher and more comfortable word that could have been chosen. To be servants of God, to be subjects, soldiers, disciples, and friends, all of these are excellent titles. But to be the sons of God 
is a step higher still. What does the Scripture say? The servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. John 8.35 To be a son of the rich and noble in this world, to be a son of the princes and kings of the earth, this is counted a privilege. But to be a son of the King of kings and Lord of lords, to be a son of the High and Holy One who inhabits eternity, this is something higher still. And yet this is the share of every true Christian. The son of an earthly parent naturally looks to his father for affection, provision, and education. There is a home always open to him. There is a love which no bad conduct can completely extinguish. All these are things that belong even to the sons of this world. Think then how great is the privilege of that poor sinner of mankind who can say of God, He is my Father. But how can sinful people like you and I become sons of God? When do we enter into this glorious relationship? We are not the sons of God by nature. We are not born that way when we come into the world. No person has a natural right to look to God as his Father. It is a vile heresy to say that he has. Men are said to be born poets and painters, but men are never born sons of God. Ephesians tells us, Ye were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians 2, 3. John says, The children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. 1 John 3, 10. The Catechism of the Church of England wisely follows the doctrine of the Bible and teaches us to say, We are by nature born in sin and children of wrath. Yes, we are born children of the devil, not children of God. Sin is indeed hereditary and runs in the family of Adam. Grace is anything but hereditary, and holy men do not have, as a matter of course, holy sons. How then and when does this mighty change come upon men? When and in what manner do sinners become the sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty? People become sons of God in the day that the Spirit leads them to believe on Jesus Christ for salvation, and not before. What does Galatians say? Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 What does the epistle to the Corinthians say? Of him are ye in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30 What does the gospel of John say? As many as received him, to them gave he power, or privilege, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12. Faith unites sinners to the Son of God and makes them one of His members. Faith makes them one of those in whom the Father sees no spot and is well pleased. Faith marries them to the beloved Son of God and entitles them to be counted among the sons. Faith gives them fellowship with the Father and the Son. Faith grafts them into the Father's family and opens up to them a room in the Father's house. Faith gives them life instead of death and makes them sons instead of servants. Show me those that have this faith, and whatever be their church or denomination, I say that they are sons of God. 
This is one of those points you should never forget. You and I know nothing of a person's sonship until they believe. No doubt the sons of God are foreknown and chosen from all eternity and predestinated to adoption. But remember, it's not until they are called in due time and believe, it's not until then that you and I can be certain they are sons. It's not until they repent and believe that the angels of God rejoice over them. The angels cannot read the book of God's election. They don't know who His hidden ones are in the earth. They rejoice over no one until they believe. But when they see sinners repenting and believing, then there is joy among them, joy that one more stick is plucked from the fire, and one more son and heir is born again to the Father in heaven. But once more I say, you and I know nothing certain about people's sonship to God until they believe in Christ. I warn everyone to beware of the deceptive notion that all men and women are children of God whether they have faith in Christ or not. It is a wild theory which many are clinging to today, but one which cannot be proved out of the Word of God. It is a dangerous dream with which many are trying to soothe themselves, but one from which there will be a fearful waking up at the last day. I do not pretend to deny that in a certain sense God is the universal Father of all mankind. He is the great first cause of all things. He is the Creator of all mankind, and in Him alone all people, whether Christians or heathens, live and move and have their being. Acts 17.28. All this is unquestionably true. In this sense, Paul told the Athenians that a poet of their own had said, We are also his offspring. Acts 17.28. But this sonship does not give a person a title to heaven. The sonship which we have by creation is the same one that belongs to stones, trees, beasts, and even to the devils. I do not deny that God loves all mankind with a love of pity and compassion. His tender mercies are over all His works. Psalm 145, 9. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. He has no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Ezekiel 18, 32. I admit all this fully. In this sense, our Lord Jesus tells us, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. But God is a reconciled and pardoning Father only to those who are members of His Son, Jesus Christ, and members are those who believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. Anything else I utterly deny. The holiness and justice of God are both against the doctrine of universalism, the false teaching that all people are the sons of God. God's holiness and justice make it impossible for sinful men to approach God except through a mediator. They tell us that God out of Christ is a consuming fire. The whole system of the New Testament is against the doctrine. The New Testament teaches that no man can claim an interest in Christ unless he will receive him as his mediator and believe on him as his Savior. 
where there is no faith in Christ, it is absurd folly to say that someone may take comfort in God as his Father. God is a reconciled Father to none but the members of Christ. It's nonsense to talk of the view I am now endorsing as narrow-minded and harsh. The gospel sets an open door before every person. Its promises are wide and full. Its invitations are earnest and tender. Its requirements are simple and clear. Only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and whosoever you are, you will be saved. Acts 16.31 But to say that proud people who will not bow their necks to the easy yoke of Christ, and worldly people who are determined to have their own way and their sins, to say that such people have a right to claim an interest in Christ, and a right to call themselves sons of God, is absurdity indeed. God offers to be their Father, but He does it on certain distinct terms. They must approach Him through Christ. Christ offers to be their Savior, but in doing it He makes one simple requirement. They must commit their souls to Him and give Him their hearts. They refuse the terms and yet dare to call God their Father. They scorn the requirement but dare to hope that Christ will save them. They want God to be their Father, but on their own terms. They want Christ to be their Savior, but on their own conditions. What can be more unreasonable? What can be more proud? What can be more unholy than such a doctrine as this? Be careful, for it is a common doctrine in these latter days. Watch out for it, for it is often beguilingly put forward and sounds beautiful and charitable in the mouths of poets, novelists, sentimentalists, and tender-hearted women. Beware of it unless you mean to throw aside your Bible altogether and set yourself up to be wiser than God. Stand firm on the old scriptural ground. No sonship to God without Christ. No part in Christ without faith. I wish there was not so much cause for giving warnings of this kind, but I have reason to think they need to be given clearly and unmistakably. There is a school of theology growing today that appears to me most uniquely calculated to promote unbelief, to help the devil, and to ruin souls. It comes to us like Joab to Amasa, 2 Samuel 20, with the highest professions of charity, liberality, and love. According to this theology, God is all mercy and love. His holiness and justice are completely left out of sight. Hell is never spoken of in this theology. Its talk is all of heaven. Damnation is never mentioned. It is treated as an impossible thing. All men and women are to be saved. Faith and the work of the Spirit are refined away into nothing at all. Everybody who believes anything has faith. Everybody who thinks anything has the Spirit. Everybody is right. Nobody is wrong. No one is to blame for any actions they may commit. It is the result of their station in life. It is the effect of circumstances. They are not accountable for their opinions any more than for the color of their skin. People must be allowed to be what they are. The Bible, of course, is a very imperfect book. It is old-fashioned. It is obsolete. We may believe just as much of it as we please and no more. I warn you solemnly to beware and stay away from all this theology. In spite of big, lofty words about liberality, charity, 
broad views, new lights, freedom from bigotry, and so forth, I do believe it to be a theology that leads to hell rather than to heaven. Facts also are directly against the teachers of this theology. Let them walk around the wards of hospitals and note the many diseases that afflict our bodies. Let them go to the shores of a dead sea and look down into its mysterious bitter waters. Let them observe the wandering Jews scattered over the face of the world. And then let them tell us, if they dare, that God is so entirely a God of mercy and love that He never does and never will punish sin. The conscience of man is directly against these teachers. Let them go to the bedside of some dying child and try to comfort him with their doctrines. Let them see if their celebrated theories will calm his gnawing, restless anxiety about the future and enable him to depart in peace. Let them show us, if they can, a few well-authenticated cases of joy and happiness in death without Bible promises, without conversion, and without the faith in the blood of Christ that is taught by old-fashioned theology. When people are leaving this world, conscience makes sad work of these new belief systems. In a dying hour, our consciences are not easily satisfied that there is no such thing as hell. Every reasonable conception that we can form of a future state is directly against these teachers. Imagine a heaven which contains all mankind. Fancy a heaven in which holy and unholy, pure and impure, good and bad are all gathered together in one confused mass. What point of union would there be in such a company? What common bond of harmony and brotherhood? What common delight in a common service? What state of agreement, what harmony, what peace, what oneness of spirit could exist? Certainly, our minds are revolted by the idea of a heaven in which there is no distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between Pharaoh and Moses, between Abraham and the Sodomites, between Paul and Nero, between Peter and Judas Iscariot, between the man who dies in the act of murder or drunkenness and men like Baxter, Wilberforce, and McCheney. Surely, an eternity in such a miserably confused crowd would be worse than annihilation itself. Such a heaven would be no better than hell. The interests of all holiness and morality are directly against these teachers. If all men and women alike are God's children, what is the difference between them in how they live their lives? And if all are going to heaven, however different they may be from one another here in the world, what is the use of laboring after holiness at all? What motive remains for living soberly, righteously, and godly? Titus 2.12 What does it matter how we conduct ourselves if we all go to heaven and nobody goes to hell? Surely the very heathen of Greece and Rome could tell us something better and wiser than this. Undeniably, a doctrine which is subversive of holiness and morality and takes away all motives for effort carries on the face of it the stamp of its origin. It is of earth, not of heaven. It is of the devil, not of God. The Bible is against these teachers from beginning to end. Hundreds of texts might be quoted which are diametrically opposed to their theories. 
If the Bible is to square with their views, these texts must be instantly rejected. There may be no valid reason why they should be rejected, but to suit their theology they must be thrown away. At this rate, the authority of the whole Bible will soon come to an end. But what do they give us in place of God's Word that they have taken out of our hands? Nothing. Nothing at all. They rob us of the bread of life and don't give us so much as a stone in its place. Once more, I warn you to be on your guard against this theology. I charge you to hold fast the doctrine which I have been trying hard to uphold in this address. Remember what I have said, and never let it go. No inheritance of glory without sonship to God. No sonship to God without an interest or share in Christ. No interest in Christ without your own personal faith. This is God's truth. Never renounce it. Do you want to know if you are a son of God? Ask yourself this day, and ask it as if you are in God's sight, if you have repented and believed. Ask yourself if you are, by experience, acquainted with Christ and united to Him in heart. If not, you may be sure you are no son of God. You are not yet born again. You are still in your sins. God may be your Father through creation, but He is not your reconciled and pardoning Father. Even though church and world agree to tell you to the contrary, and clergy and laity unite in flattering you, your sonship is worth little or nothing in the sight of God. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Without faith in Christ, you are no son of God. You are not born again. Do you desire to become a son of God? If you see your sins and flee to Christ for salvation, this day you will be placed among the children. Acknowledge your iniquity and grab hold of the hand that Jesus holds out to you this day, and sonship, with all its privileges, is your own. Confess your sins and bring them to Christ, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. This very day, old things will pass away and all things become new. This very day, you will be forgiven, pardoned, and accepted in the Beloved. Today, you will have a new name given to you in heaven. You started out listening to this as a child of wrath, but tonight you will die down as a child of God. If your professed desire of sonship is sincere, if you are truly weary of your sins and have something more than a lazy wish to be free, then there is real comfort for you. It is all true. It is all written in Scripture even as I have put it down. I dare not raise barriers between you and God. This day I say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be a son and be saved. Are you already a son of God? Rejoice, and be exceedingly glad of your privileges. Rejoice, for you have good reason to be thankful. Remember the words of the beloved apostle, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 1 John 3, 1 how wonderful that heaven should look down on earth, that the holy God should set his mind on sinful man and admit him into his family!
What does it matter if the world does not understand you? What if the men of this world laugh at you and cast out your name as evil? Let them laugh. God is your father. You have no need to be ashamed. The queen can create a nobleman, the bishops can ordain clergymen, but queens, lords, and commons, bishops, priests, and deacons, all together cannot of their own power make one son of God, or one of greater dignity than a son of God. People who can call God their father, and Christ their older brother, those people may be poor and lowly, but they never need to be ashamed. Let me show you now the special evidences of the true Christian's relationship to God. How can you make sure of your own sonship? How will you find out if you are one who has come to Christ by faith and been born again? What are the marks, signs, and tokens by which the sons of God can be known? This is a question that all who love eternal life need to ask. The verses of Scripture I am asking you to consider, as well as many others, supply the answer. True Christians are led by the Spirit. They have the Spirit of adoption. They have the witness of the Spirit, and they suffer with Christ. The sons of God are all led by His Spirit. What does Scripture say? As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8.14 They are all under the leading and teaching of the unseen, almighty power of the Holy Spirit. The sons of God no longer turn to their own ways, walk in the light of their own eyes, or follow their own natural heart's desires. The Spirit leads them. The Spirit guides them. There is a movement in their hearts, lives, and affections which they feel, though they may not be able to explain, and a movement which is always more or less in the same direction. They are led away from sin, away from self-righteousness, away from the world. This is the road by which the Spirit leads God's children. Those whom God adopts, He teaches and trains. He shows them their own hearts. He makes them weary of their own ways. He makes them long for inward peace. They are led to Christ. They are led to the Bible. They are led to prayer. They are led to holiness. This is the beaten path along which the Spirit makes them travel. Those whom God adopts, He always sanctifies. He makes sin very bitter to them, and He makes holiness very sweet. It is the Spirit who leads them to Sinai and shows them the law so that their hearts may be broken. It is He who leads them to Calvary and shows them the cross so that their hearts may be bandaged and healed. It is He who leads them to Pisgah and gives them distant views of the promised land so that their hearts may be cheered. When they are taken into the wilderness and taught to see their own emptiness, it is by the leading of the Spirit. When they are carried up to Tabor and lifted up with glimpses of the glory to come, it is by the leading of the Spirit. Each and all of God's sons are the subject of these leadings. Each and all yield themselves willingly to them, and each and all are led by the right way to a city where they can live. Put this deep in your heart and don't let it go. The sons of God are a people led by the Spirit of God and always led more or less in the same way. 
Their experience will correspond wonderfully when they compare notes in heaven. This is one mark of sonship. Furthermore, all the sons of God have the feelings of adopted children towards their Father in heaven. What does the Scripture say? Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 The sons of God are delivered from that oppressive fear of God that sin creates in the natural heart. They are redeemed from that feeling of guilt that made Adam hide himself in the trees of the garden, and Cain go out from the presence of the Lord. They are no longer afraid of God's holiness and justice and majesty. They no longer feel as if there were a great gulf and barrier between themselves and God, and as if God were angry with them and must be angry with them because of their sins. The sons of God are delivered from these chains and fetters of the soul. Their feelings towards God are now those of peace and confidence. They see Him as a Father reconciled in Christ Jesus. They look on Him as a God whose attributes are all satisfied by their great Mediator and Peacemaker, the Lord Jesus, and as a God who is just and yet the justifier of everyone who believes on Jesus. As their Father, the sons can draw near to Him with boldness. As their Father, they can speak to Him with freedom. They have exchanged the spirit of bondage for that of liberty, and the spirit of fear for that of love. They know that God is holy, but they are not afraid. They know that they are sinners, but they are not frightened. Though God is holy, they believe that He is completely reconciled. Though they are sinners, they believe they are clothed all over with Jesus Christ. That is how the sons of God feel. I admit that some of them feel this more vividly than others. Some of them carry around with them scraps and remnants of the old spirit of bondage to their dying day. Many of them have fits and spasms of the old man's complaint of fear returned to them at intervals. But very few of the sons of God could be found who would not say, if cross-examined, that since they have known Christ they have had very different feelings toward God than they ever had before. They feel as if something like the old Roman form of adoption had taken place between themselves and their Father in heaven. They feel as if He had said to each one of them, Will you be my son? And as if their hearts had replied, I will. Try to grasp and hold this also. The sons of God are people who feel towards God in a way that the children of the world do not. They feel no more oppressive fear towards Him. They feel toward him as a reconciled parent. This is another mark of sonship. The sons of God have the witness of the Spirit in their consciences. What does the Scripture say? The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Romans 8.16 They have all got something within their hearts which tells them there is a relationship between themselves and God. They feel something which tells them that old things are passed away and all things have become new. It tells them that guilt is gone, peace is restored, heaven's door is open, and hell's door is shut. They have what the children of the world do not have. 
a felt, positive, reasonable hope. They have what Paul calls the seal, Ephesians 1.13, and earnest, 2 Corinthians 1.22, of the Spirit. I don't deny that this witness of the Spirit varies greatly in the extent that the sons of God possess it. With some, it is a loud, clear, ringing, and distinct testimony of conscience. I am Christ's, and Christ is mine. With others, it is a little, feeble, stammering whisper that the devil and the flesh often prevent from being heard. Some of the children of God speed on their course toward heaven under the full sails of assurance. Others are tossed to and fro all their voyage and will scarcely believe they have faith. But take the least and lowest of the sons of God. Ask him if he will give up the little bit of religious hope that he has attained. Ask him if he will exchange his heart with all its doubts and conflicts, its struggles and fears. Ask him if he will exchange that heart for the heart of the utterly worldly and careless man. Ask him if he would be content to turn around and throw down the things he is holding and go back to the world. Who can doubt his answer? I cannot do that, he would reply. I don't know if I have faith, and I don't feel sure that I have grace, but I do have something within me that I don't want to part with. And what is that something? I will tell you. It is the witness of the Spirit. Try to understand this. The sons of God have the witness of the Spirit in their consciences, which is another mark of sonship. One thing more. All the sons of God take part in suffering with Christ. What does the Scripture say? If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him. Romans 8.17 All the children of God have a cross to carry. They have trials, troubles, and afflictions to go through for the gospel's sake. They have trials from the world, trials from the flesh, and trials from the devil. They have trials of feeling rejection from relatives and friends, hard words, hard conduct, and hard judgment. They have trials in the matter of character, slander, misrepresentation, mockery, insinuation of false motives. All of these often rain thick upon them. They have trials in the matter of the affairs of this world. They often have to choose whether they will please man and lose glory, or gain glory and offend man. They have trials from their own hearts. They each have their own thorn in the flesh. This is the experience of the sons of God. Some of them suffer more and some less. Some of them suffer in one way and some in another. God measures out their portions like a wise physician, and He cannot err. But I don't believe there was ever one child of God who reached paradise without a cross. Suffering is the diet of the Lord's family. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Hebrews 12, 6. If ye be without chastisement, then are ye bastards and not sons. Hebrews 12, 8. We must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22.
When Bishop Latimer was told by his landlord that he had never had a trouble, then, said he, God cannot be here. Suffering is a part of the process by which the sons of God are sanctified. They are chastened to wean them from the world and to make them partakers of God's holiness. The captain of their salvation was made perfect through sufferings, and so are they. There has never been a great saint who did not have either great afflictions or great corruptions. I agree with Philip Melanchthon, who said, Where there are no cares, there will generally be no prayers. Try to hold this in your heart also. All the sons of God have to bear a cross. A suffering Saviour usually has suffering disciples. The bridegroom of the church was a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 3. The bride must not be a woman of pleasures and unacquainted with grief. Blessed are they that mourn. Let us not complain of the cross. This is also a sign of sonship. No cross, no crown. Don't suppose that you are a son of God unless you have the scriptural marks of sonship. Take care to avoid a sonship without evidence. When a person has no leading of the Spirit to show me, no spirit of adoption to tell of, no witness of the Spirit in his conscience, no cross in his experience, is this man a son of God? God forbid that I should say so. He's not marked with the mark of God's children. He is no heir of glory. Don't tell me that you have been baptized and taught the Catechism of the Church of England and therefore must be a child of God. I tell you that the infant baptism register is not the book of life. I tell you that to be christened a child of God and called regenerate in infancy by the faith and charity of the prayer book is one thing, but to be a child of God in truth is another thing altogether. Go read that catechism again. It is the death unto sin and the new birth unto righteousness that makes men children of grace. Unless you know these by experience, you are no son of God. Don't tell me that you are a member of Christ's church and so must be a son. I answer that the sons of the church are not necessarily the sons of God. Such sonship is not the sonship of the eighth chapter of Romans. If you are to be saved, that is the sonship you must have. And now some of you will want to know if you may be saved without the witness of the Spirit. I answer that if you mean without the full assurance of hope, you may be saved without question. But if you want to know if you can be saved without any inward sense or knowledge or hope of salvation, I answer that ordinarily you cannot. I warn you plainly to get rid of all indecision about your state before God and to make your calling sure. Clear up your position and relationship. Don't think there is anything praiseworthy in always doubting. Leave that to the Roman Catholic. Don't think it is wise to always be living like the borderers of old time on the debatable ground. Assurance, said old Puritan John Dodd, may be attained, and what have we been doing all our lives since we became Christians if we have not attained it? 
I do not doubt that some of you true Christians will think your evidence of sonship is too small to be good, and will write bitter things against yourselves. Let me try to cheer you. Who gave you the feelings you possess? Who made you hate sin? Who made you love Christ? Who made you long and labor to be holy? From where did these feelings come? Did they come from nature? There are no such products in a natural man's heart. Did they come from the devil? He would gladly stifle such feelings altogether. Cheer up and take courage. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. Press forward and go on. There is hope for you after all. Strive, labor, seek, ask, knock, follow on. You will see that you are sons of God. Last, let me show you the privileges of the true Christian's relationship to God. Nothing you can think of would be more glorious than the prospects of the sons of God. The words of Scripture which began this address contain a rich mine of good and comforting things. If we are children, says Paul, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, that we may be also glorified together. Romans 8.17 True Christians, then, are heirs. Something is prepared for them all which is yet to be revealed. They are heirs of God. To be heirs of the rich on earth is something. How much more, then, is it to be a son and heir of the King of kings? They are joint heirs with Christ. They will share in His majesty and take part in His glory. They will be glorified together with Him. And this, remember, is for all the children. Abraham took care to provide for all his children, and God takes care to provide for his. None of them are disinherited. None will be cast out. None will be cut off. Each will stand in his lot and have a portion in the day when the Lord brings many sons to glory. Who can explain the full nature of the inheritance of the saints in light? Who can describe the glory which is yet to be revealed and given to the children of God? Words fail us. Language falls short. Mind cannot conceive fully, and tongue cannot express perfectly the things that are contained in the glory yet to come upon the sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. It is indeed a true saying of the Apostle John, It doth not yet appear what we shall be. 1 John 3, 2. The Bible itself only lifts a little the veil that hangs over this subject. How could it do more? We could not thoroughly understand more if we had been told more. The condition of our mind is still too earthly, and our understanding is still too worldly to appreciate more if we had it. The Bible generally deals with the subject in negative terms, not in positive assertions. It describes more of what there will not be in the glorious inheritance, and so we get some faint idea of what there will be. It paints the absence of certain things, in order that we may drink in a little of the blessedness of the things present. It tells us that the inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away. 1 Peter 1, 4. It tells us that the crown of glory 
fadeth not away. 1 Peter 5, 4. It tells us that the devil is to be bound, that there shall be no more night and no more curse, that death shall be cast into the lake of fire, that all tears shall be wiped away, and that the inhabitants will no more say, I am sick. These are glorious things, no corruption, no fading, no withering, no devil, no curse of sin, no sorrow, no tears, no sickness, no death. Surely the cup of the children of God will indeed run over. But there are positive things, we are told about the glory, yet to come, on the heirs of God, which we should not keep back. There are many sweet, pleasant, and indescribable comforts in their future inheritance which all true Christians should consider. There are refreshments for fainting pilgrims in many of the words and expressions of Scripture that you and I ought to store up for a time of need. Is knowledge pleasant to us now? Is the little that we know of God, Christ, and the Bible precious to our souls, and do we long for more? We will have it perfectly in glory. What does the Scripture say? Then shall I know, even as also I am known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Blessed be God, in heaven there will be no more disagreements among believers. Episcopalians and Presbyterians, Calvinists and Armenians, Millenarians and Amillenarians, friends of establishment churches and friends of the voluntary church system, advocates of infant baptism and advocates of adult baptism. All will at length see eye to eye. The former ignorance will have passed away. We will marvel to find how childish and blind we have been. Is holiness pleasant to us now? Is sin the burden and bitterness of our lives? Do we long for entire conformity to the image of God? We will have it perfectly in glory. What does the Scripture say? Christ gave Himself for the church, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Ephesians 5.27 Oh, the blessedness of an eternal goodbye to sin! How little even the best of us do now! What awful corruption sticks like glue to all our motives, all our thoughts, all our words, and all our actions! So many of us, like Naphtali, are excellent in our words, but like Reuben, are unstable in our works. Thank God all this will be changed. Is rest pleasant to us now? Do we often feel faint while we are striving? Do we long for a world in which we need not be always watching and warring? We shall have it perfectly in glory. What does the Scripture say? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Hebrews 4, 9. The daily, hourly conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil will at last be at an end. The enemy will be bound. The warfare will be over. The wicked will at last stop troubling and afflicting. The weary will at last be at rest. There will be a great calm. Is service pleasant to us now? Do we find it sweet to work for Christ, and yet groan being burdened by a feeble body? Is our spirit often willing, but hampered and obstructed by the poor, weak flesh? 
Have our hearts burned within us when we have been allowed to give a cup of cold water for Christ's sake, but have we sighed when we think what unprofitable servants we are? Be encouraged to know we will be able to serve perfectly and without weariness in glory. What does the Scripture say? They serve Him day and night in His temple. Revelation 7, 15 Is satisfaction pleasant to us now? Do we find the world empty? Do we long for the filling up of every void place and gap in our hearts? We will have it perfectly in glory. We will no longer have to mourn over cracks in all our earthen vessels, thorns on all our roses, and bitter dregs in all our sweet cups. We will no longer lament with Jonah over withered plants. We will no longer say with Solomon, All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Ecclesiastes 1.14. We will no longer cry with aged David, I have seen an end of all perfection. Psalm 119.96. What do the Scriptures say? I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Psalm 17.15. Is communion with the saints pleasant to us now? Do we feel that we are most happy when we are with the excellent of the earth? Are we never so much at home as in their company? We will have it perfectly in glory. What does the Scripture say? The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. Matthew 13.41 He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together His elect from the four winds. Matthew 24.31 Praise God! We will see all the saints of whom we have read in the Bible, and in whose steps we have tried to walk. We will see apostles, prophets, patriarchs, martyrs, reformers, missionaries, and ministers of whom the world was not worthy. We will see the faces of those we have known and loved in Christ on earth, and over whose departure we shed bitter tears. We will see them brighter and more glorious than they ever were before. And best of all, we will see them without hurry and anxiety and without feeling that we only meet to part again. In glory there is no death, no parting, no farewell. Is communion with Christ pleasant to us now? Do we find His name precious to us? Do we feel our hearts burn within us at the thought of His dying love? We will have perfect communion with Him in glory. So shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 We will be with Him in paradise. We will see His face in the kingdom. These eyes of ours will behold those hands and feet that were pierced with nails, and that head that was crowned with thorns. Where He is, there will the sons of God be. When He comes, they will come with Him. When He sits down in His glory, they will sit down by His side. What a blessed promise! I am a dying man in a dying world. All before me is dark. We don't know what the world to come is like. It is a harbor unknown. But Christ is there, and that is enough. Surely, if there is rest and peace in following Him by faith on earth, there will be far more rest and peace when we see Him face to face. If we have found it good to follow the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness, 
we will find it a thousand times better to sit down in our eternal inheritance with our Joshua in the promised land. If you are not yet among the sons and heirs, I do pity you with all my heart. How much you are missing! How little true comfort you are enjoying! There you are, struggling on and toiling in the fire and wearying yourself for mere earthly ends. You seek rest and find none. Chase shadows and never catch them. Wonder why you are not happy but refuse to see the cause. You are hungry, thirsty, empty, and blind to the plenty within your reach. Oh, I wish you were wise that you would hear the voice of Jesus and learn of Him. If you are one of those who are sons and heirs, you can rejoice and be happy. You can wait contentedly like the boy patience in Pilgrim's Progress. Your best things are yet to come. You can bear crosses without complaint. Your light affliction is but for a moment. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Romans 8:18. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Colossians 3:4. You need not envy the transgressor and his prosperity. You are the truly rich. A dying believer in my own parish said, I am more rich than I ever was in my life. You may say, as Mephibosheth said to David, Let the world take all. My king is coming again in peace. You may say, as Alexander said, when he gave all his riches away and was asked what he kept for himself, I have hope. You don't need to be discouraged by sickness. The eternal part of you is safe and provided for, whatever happens to your body. You can look calmly on death. It opens a door between you and your inheritance. You don't need to sorrow excessively over the things of the world, over partings and bereavements, losses and crosses. The day of gathering is coming. Your treasure is out of harm's reach. Every year heaven becomes fuller with those you love and earth emptier. Glory in your inheritance. It is all yours if you are a son of God. If we are children, then we are heirs. And now, in conclusion, let me ask you Whose child are you? Are you the child of nature or the child of grace? Are you the child of the devil or the child of God? You can't be both at the same time. Which are you? Work out the answer because you will die as one or the other. It can be settled, so it's foolish to leave it in doubt. Resolve it because time is short, the world is getting old, and you are fast drawing near to the judgment seat of Christ. Settle it, for death is near, the Lord is at hand, and who can tell what a day might bring? Oh, do not rest until the question is settled. Never feel satisfied until you can say, I have been born again, I am a son of God. If you are not a son and an heir of God, let me beg you to become one without delay. Do you want to be rich? There are unsearchable riches in Christ. Do you desire to be noble? If you believe in Christ, you will be a king. Do you want to be happy? 
you will have a peace that passes understanding, and that the world can never give nor take away. Come out, take up the cross, and follow Christ. Come out from among the thoughtless and the worldly, and hear the word of the Lord, I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6, 17-18. If you are a son of God, I call on you to walk worthy of your father's house. I charge you sincerely to honor him in your life, and above all to honor him by complete obedience to all his commands, and a hearty love for all his children. Labor to travel through the world like a child of God and an heir of glory. Let men be able to trace a family likeness between you and your father. Live a heavenly life. Seek things that are above. Don't appear to be building your nest below. Behave like someone who is looking for a city out of sight, whose citizenship is in heaven, and who is willing to put up with many hardships until he gets home. Labor to feel like a son of God in every situation in which you are placed. Never forget you are on your father's ground as long as you are here on earth. Never forget that a father's hand sends all your mercies and your crosses. Cast every care on him. Be happy and cheerful in him. Why should you ever be sad if you are the king's son? People should not wonder when they look at you if it is a good thing to be one of God's children. Strive to behave toward others like a son of God. Be gentle and blameless in your day and generation. Be a peacemaker among all you know. Seek for your children sonship to God above everything else. Whatever else you do for them, seek for them an inheritance in heaven. No parents leave their children so well provided for as those who leave them as sons and heirs of God. If you are a son of God, persevere in your Christian calling and keep moving forward. Be careful to lay aside every weight and the sin that most easily trips you up. Keep your eyes steadily fixed on Jesus. Abide in Him. Remember that without Him you can do nothing, and with Him you can do all things. John 15, 5, Philippians 4, 13. Watch and pray daily. Scripture, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Make it clear in your heart that not a cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple will lose its reward, and that every year you are so much nearer to home. In just a little while, he who is coming will come, and will not tarry. Then will be the glorious liberty and the full display of the sons of God. Then will the world acknowledge that they were the truly wise. The sons of God will at last come of age, and they will no longer be heirs of expectancy, but heirs in possession. And then they will hear with exceeding joy those comfortable words, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. Surely that day will make amends for all. It is my heart's desire and prayer that all of you will see the value of the inheritance of glory and to one day 
possess it. Scripture, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22, 20 The Church Has Waited Long by Horatius Bonar The Church Has Waited Long, Her Absent Lord to See, And Still in Loneliness She Waits, A Friendless Stranger She. Age after age has gone, Sun after sun has set, And still in weeds of widowhood She weeps, a mourner yet. Saint after saint on earth has lived and loved and died, and as they left us one by one, we laid them side by side. We laid them down to sleep, but not in hope forlorn, we laid them but to ripen there, till the last glorious morn. The serpent's brood increase, the powers of hell grow bold, the conflict thickens, faith is low, and love is waxing cold. How long, O Lord our God, holy and true and good, wilt thou not judge thy suffering church, her sighs and tears and blood? We long to hear thy voice, to see thee face to face, to share thy crown and glory then, as now we share thy grace. Should not the loving bride, the absent bridegroom, mourn? Should she not wear the weeds of grief until her Lord return? The whole creation groans and waits to hear that voice that shall restore her comeliness and make her wastes rejoice. Come, Lord, and wipe away the curse, the sin, the stain, and make this blighted world of ours thine own fair world again. Come then, Lord Jesus, come.